0: Hi, this is John. By the way, and today I'm looking at First and Second Thessalonians, and it occurred to me as I was getting my materials out, I forgot to mention something back in Ephesians two two. I just have to tell you because it's so interesting to me that in Ephesians chapter two verse two, a couple of lessons ago, there's a very strange name for Satan. It calls him the Prince of the Power of the Air. And the first time I ever looked that up, I was actually looking at Lehi's dream, and it talked about the great and spacious building being in the air. And it footnoted, in 1 Nephi 8, it footnoted us to Ephesians 2.2. 2. And I, we've always thought the great and spacious building is in the air because it has no foundation and it's going to fall, which is all true. But when I saw this reference, I thought, I wonder what that means, so I looked up. In my doctrinal New Testament commentary, my old Bruce R. McConkie commentary about the New Testament, what does that mean, prince of the power of the air? And Elder McConkie said that Satan's influence will be in the air around us. And I just thought, oh, that's Wi-Fi. That's (laughs) That's cell service. That is, in the latter days, it is literally in the air around us. And some of the worst things out there can be brought in to the world In the very air around us on the air we used to say in television days and in the air wi-fi and satellite and and everything else so i I just had to tell you that all right first and second thessalonians here is a nice little summary from the new testament student manual for the institute students a little longer than your lesson plans and comments in your come follow me manual paul and his missionary companions found success preaching to the people in Thessalonica, but were ultimately forced out of the city by detractors. Sometime after they left, Paul learned that the Thessalonian saints had remained faithful and were sharing the gospel message with others. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul reiterated his sincere devotion to God and to teaching the gospel. He also responded to the Thessalonian saints' concerns regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul later wrote a second letter to the Thessalonian saints when he learned that false ideas about the coming of Christ were continuing to cause concern. Okay, so first of all, some beautiful phrases that are in Thessalonians chapter 1. It's only 10 verses. Verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. Verse 6, ye have became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Sometimes we are more open to the Word of God, as were the poor Zoramites in Alma 31, 32, because of their afflictions. Their afflictions had humbled them, and they were more willing to receive, and we see that here. I In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, go backwards a bit to that labor of love phrase that we use so much. I, I found this uh, story from Elder Oaks that I thought you would like. The most effective missionaries, member and full-time, always act out of love. I learned this lesson as a young man. I was assigned to visit a less active member, a successful professional many years older than I. Looking back on my actions, I realized that I had very little loving concern for the man I visited. I acted out of duty, with a desire to report 100% on my home teaching. One evening... Close to the end of a month, I phoned to ask if my companion and I could come right over and visit him. His chastening reply taught me an unforgettable lesson. No, I don't believe I want you to come over this evening, he said. I'm tired, I've already dressed for bed, I am reading, and I'm just not willing to be interrupted so that you can report 100% on your home teaching this month. That reply still stings me because I knew he had sensed my selfish motivation. I hope no person we approach with an invitation to hear the message of the restored gospel feels that we are acting out of any reason other than a genuine love for them and an unselfish desire to share something we know to be precious. Whew! That's ouch, huh? That's from October 2001 General Conference, Elder Oaks, a talk called Sharing the Gospel. It was done, it wasn't a labor of love. It was, I got to check this box, and we've all done that. And I think for Elder Oaks to tell that story shows some amazing humility on his part to tell how he kind of learned that lesson. Going back to verse 6 in First Thessalonians of chapter 1, ye became followers of us and of the Lord. That's what I had underlined, us and of the Lord. I, I just kind of liked that phrase. It's God and his prophets. It's Jesus and his church leaders. And it's not pick one or the other. I'm grateful that recently Sister Sherry Dew, she gave a talk at BYU Hawaii called Prophets Can See Around Corners, which was really awesome and well-received, and now has a book by a similar title that's out about living prophets. And I feel like in my teaching, I have to make sure we understand that God has living prophets today, and we can trust them. So this idea of be followers of us and of the Lord, I liked that Paul would say that. Okay, I wanted you to notice something in Thessalonians chapter 2. This phrase is used in verse 2, in verse 8, and in verse 9. To speak unto you the gospel of God. Not the gospel of God only in verse 8, but preached unto you the gospel of God again in verse 9. So often we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remembered finding a comment about from Bruce Armaconkey once that kind of implied that when the plan was first presented by God, it was the gospel of God. But when he asked, whom shall I send? And Jehovah or Jesus volunteered and was chosen to be the Savior, became the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought, oh, okay, I like that idea. So the gospel of God became the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Savior put it into action by becoming the Savior. In verse 11, it says, And as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children. I think of a father comforting. I looked up the etymology of comfort, and I just love this idea. Come, you see it lots of places like a companion, a communication, there's another person. And come, C-O-M, come, and fortis is from a fort. So comforter means together strong. Isn't that great? So a father with a father comforting his children together were strong. With the Holy Ghost being called the Comforter, together we're stronger. So, I love that idea. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And when I read that, I thought very much of Jesus', you know, this new commandment I give that ye love one another as I have loved you, Paul saying, "Love one another, even as we love you, reminded me of that same thing, and watching people join the church and go through affliction as Paul did, must have filled him with a lot of love for them. When we go to first Thessalonians chapter four, we have a similar phrase at the very end, wherefore comfort one another with these words, together, strong. We can comfort one another with these words, which I'm writing to you. It also reminded me of, I've heard it was Brigham Young who said once that the gospel is here to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) So if we ever get too comfortable, the gospel is not at times a comfortable message. And when Paul says, comfort one another with these words, we might ask, are the gospel words always comforting? And the answer is probably not. When we look at Jacob in the Book of Mormon, when he gets up in front of the men and husbands in Jacob 2 and 3, he says, many of you have come up hither to hear the pleasing word of God, which healeth the wounded soul. And he was constrained and felt anxiety because he had to deliver the message that would enlarge the wounds of those who are already wounded. So his words were more warning and rebuke than comfort. So it depends on where we're at. Kind of there, there's an if-the-shoe-fits element with some of the things that we read. Paul is writing to these folks in Thessalonica, saying, Comfort one another with these words. So sometimes we have comforting words, the pleasing word of God, as Jacob called it, other times, words that would enlarge our wounds or maybe scold us or call us to action about what we need to do. Now, chapter 5 refers to this idea of a thief in the night. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, your leaders, uh, kind of all's well in Zion, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape but ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief ye are the children of light and the children of the day we are not of the night nor of darkness therefore let us not sleep as do others but let us watch and be sober i like this idea that a thief in the night is a metaphor used for those who are not watching, who are not sober. You have no idea when a thief in the night is going to come. But a woman in travail, a woman who is in labor, she has known for months what's coming. And I like the idea that a woman in labor or a woman in travail is a metaphor for the signs of the times. She has all sorts of signs that the birth is near as we will have all sorts of signs that the Second Coming is near. So, the footnote that I appreciated here is footnote 2b in First Thessalonians 5, Doctrine and Covenants section 106 verse 4, and it says that the Second Coming will overcome the world as a thief in the night. So, we're trying not to be the world. We're trying to be Heavenly Father's children and not as the sometimes grouped, the world, everybody else who is being worldly. For them, a thief in the night. For us, perhaps a woman in travail. Some great phrases at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice evermore. Some really short verses, that's the entire verse 16. (laughs) And it reminds me of Gadona who confronted Korahor in Alma 30 and said, Why are you telling this people there will be no Christ to interrupt their rejoicings? They were rejoicing evermore, perhaps. Pray without ceasing. Uh, verse 19 Quench not the spirit. The footnote says extinguish, hinder, or suppress. Despise not prophesyings. Verse 21 Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. The footnote for proof says Greek examine, put to the test. And I love this idea. We, as believers, do not need to check our brains at the door. If it's true, it belongs to the gospel. If it's science and it's true, it belongs. Now, science is always changing, as you know. You've probably bought textbooks that went obsolete after a year or two because the answers changed. The science changed. (laughs) They discovered more. But if it's true, it belongs to truth. It belongs to the gospel. And we can prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Great phrase. 2 Thessalonians is only three chapters, but one of the things I wanted to, to point out is it seems that they thought that Jesus was coming very soon. So Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken or in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now the JST says, except ye receive it from us. If a letter comes from us, that's different. The day shall let no man deceive you by any means, verse 3. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. What is a falling away? Well, the Greek says apostasy or defection. I appreciate what it says in the New Testament manual on page 453. I'm reading directly from the New Testament Institute manual. In order to calm the saints' concern that the Lord had already returned, Paul explained that before the second coming, there would be a falling away first. Falling away is a translation of the Greek word apostasia. It looks like Apost. Asia, apostasia, apostasia, a word that is closer in meaning to rebellion or mutiny. Stephen Robinson, who wrote the book Are Mormons, Christians, a fantastic book, used that word in his teaching that it was more like a mutiny. It was taken over by intellectuals and philosophers. The Greek thinking Hellenization of Christianity happened. Back to the manual. Paul was therefore speaking of an intentional fight against the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than a gradual movement away from it. In the Book of Mormon, Nephi's vision of the future taught him that the house of Israel joined with those in the great and spacious building to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Remember, that's kind of shocking when you read that. Apostasy is not simply a passive letting go of truth, but an active rebellion that originates within the covenant community. Whoa, that's scary, isn't it? So they knew the apostasy would come, but they looked of it at it as a mutiny. It would be taken over from within. And again, I had passed by that book many times in the bookstore, Our Mormons, Christians by Stephen Robinson. I did not realize what a powerful book it was and how he went into every possible argument you could use to say that Mormons, as we used to be called, were not Christians, and said if you're going to say that, then you're going to have to say this about these other Protestants who at one time, or other believers who believe the same things. a really good book, and I learned a lot of, of history in between the Apostasy and the Restoration from that book. Okay, lastly, I just wanted to mention... 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. Even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. The idea of idleness and industry, labor, laziness, those are all topical guide topics, is referenced there in the footnote. If any would not work, neither should he eat. In Doctrine and Covenants, about four different places, it talks about there are idlers among them. And the idea of Adam and Eve, by the sweat of your face, will you eat bread? It doesn't say others should sweat so that you could eat. It says you should sweat so that you can eat. And that kind of idea is being repeated here. The idea of we'll work for food, yes, that's what we all have to do. We have to work for food. Now, obviously, when we know people who have physical trials, whatever, where they can't do that, that is where our charity comes in. Those who are able-bodied and will not work. It's one of the things I love about the desert industries is it will take anybody and find something they can do to contribute. And it so builds them so much more than to say, you can't do anything. Here's food. We'll just take care of you. To say, what can you do? What can you offer? And let's have you do that. And we will give you a job and a paycheck and everything lastly verse 13 but ye brethren be not weary in well-doing and that verse shows up in what is it section 63 the doctrine covenant 64 be not weary in well-doing you're laying the foundation of a great work and it's exactly what these saints in Thessalonica were doing also well all these extra ideas have been helpful to you and I'll look forward to talking to you next time